Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're so glad you're joining us again. We really are. And we hope you've been sharing around that kindness we talked about last week. Yeah, thanks for the reminder. I think it is so important. I'm still recovering from last week's case. You needed to fit in a little extra kindness just to make up for that case. For sure. And Christy, you're continuing with the Christmas spirit this week, aren't you? I am. So I'm just going to start out today with a quick question. When you were a kid, did you ever count down to things and how many sleeps away it was? Always. For sure. Well, in 10 more sleeps from when this episode airs, it's Christmas. We want to wish our listeners the merriest of Christmases. We hope you all get to spend time with your loved ones and really celebrate the season. And that's what we're going to do too. We are. Because speaking of spending time with our loved ones, Melissa and I have decided to take our first break ever to enjoy the holidays. It's been a long time. It's been well over a year. So there will not be a new episode for the next two weeks, meaning the rest of December. But don't worry, we will be back the first week of January to ring in the new year with you. Yes, January 5th, we will be back with you with a new episode. For sure. Like I said, it's the first break we've ever taken since starting Buried Motives, and we hope you will understand that we just need a minute to recharge so we can come back full force in the new year with some in-depth cases. We'll be refreshed and renewed then. (laughs) Yeah, and we have some exciting things that we've got planned for this coming year, so it'll give us some time to get organized. But if you do need something to check out while we're taking a little break, feel free to check out Katie and Olivia and their podcast, Podcast by Proxy. They are also Canadian content creators. We're live! Hi Hi, friends, we're We're Katie Katie and Olivia. Podcast by Proxy is a Canadian true crime podcast hosted by former work besties who got new jobs but really missed working together. Every Tuesday, we take turns telling a true crime or history case in Canada in a conversational banter style. Grab your nearest pillow to scream into and get ready to learn about the not-so-polite Canadians. If you're looking for your new true crime besties, you have found the right place. You can find us on your listening platform of choice, Instagram, and Patreon. Bye! Yeah, so if you're missing us, feel free to check these ladies out or take a listen to some of our older episodes. It's always nice to revisit sometimes. For sure. Since this is our episode closest to Christmas, my case this week is a Christmas case. It involves one of the worst and widely debated family massacres to date. Ooh, I love when there's always just a little bit of mystery. And this one absolutely has some mystery to it. There is no question, to me, who the dirtbag killer was, but his motive is still undetermined. I have my theories on why it happened, but you can see what you think as we go through the details. You know I love to guess. I know you do. (laughs) So here, happy early Christmas. Yay! (laughs) Before we dive into it, I want to shout out one of our awesome listeners for requesting this case. I felt like a listener request would be a great way to end the year. So a special thank you to Sarah for requesting this case. Merry Christmas, Sarah. 
and to all of our other listeners. Sarah actually requested this last Christmas. So it's taken a whole year to do this listener request. So I hope you're still listening, Sarah. (laughs) And I hope you get to hear that we're doing your case. Today's horrible family annihilation took place on Christmas Day in 1929 in North Carolina, USA. The man responsible for taking the lives of his family was Charles Davis Lawson. Charles was born on the 10th of May, 1886, and was often called Charlie by those who knew him. It's the name on his headstone, so that is what I'm going to call him. His father was William George Augustus Lawson. He was born and eventually died in North Carolina. He died in the year 1919 at the age of 66. He was spared the realization of what his son would eventually do to his family. Charlie's mother was Nancy Jane Hill. As with everyone else in this case, she was born and also eventually died in North Carolina. She died in 1940 at the age of 78, fully aware of the monster her son had become. Oh no. Charlie's parents had eight children in total. Charlie was the third born. Five of his seven siblings lived long enough to witness his abhorrent acts. I always think how hard this would be for the family, and that is why I often mention it with cases that are older like this. With a family annihilation, the victim's family and the dirtbag's family is the same family, making it so incredibly challenging for the remaining family, I'm sure. It's like a two-edged sword. It's coming at them from both sides. For sure. And that's why I'm always so curious who was still alive in the family to have to go through this. Mm. I mentioned that we are staying in North Carolina for this case, but guess where in North Carolina that the Lawson family grew up? I don't know in North Carolina at all. <laughs> Lawsonville! Were their families the founders? I don't think so, <laughs> but they were the Lawson family from Lawsonville, and that just made me happy for some reason. That is pretty awesome. Lawsonville was an unincorporated community about 16 kilometers or 10 miles from Danbury. Not a lot is reported about Charlie's childhood, but I imagine it was pretty standard for the time. His siblings never reported any abuse while growing up, making this another one of those cases where we don't really need a lot of background on our dirtbag because his childhood isn't what was to blame for his actions. Hmm. At the age of 25 in 1911, Charlie married Fanny Manring. Fanny was born on October 13, 1892, making her 19 when they got married. Which was probably pretty typical at the time. Oh yeah, 19 and 25, that would have been pretty standard. Fanny also came from a large family and was also the third-born child, but out of 10 children. She had nine siblings and was outlived by all of them. Hmm. Charlie and Fanny stayed true to their upbringings and filled their own home with children. Fanny gave birth to eight children between 1912 and 1929. Sadly, their third-born child, William Sanders Lawson, died at the age of six in 1920. He died from an illness, most reportedly pneumonia. In 1918, Charlie and Fanny moved their family from Lawsonville to Germanton. They had four of their eventual eight children at this point in time. Germanton is also an unincorporated community and had a very small population, In 2020, the census indicated that only 790 people were living there. Hey, that's not so small. That's super small. (laughs) Is that like the town you came from? Yes. (laughs) That's small, Melissa. I hate to break it to you. Ours was smaller, actually. (laughs) That explains a lot. No, No, just kidding. (laughs) Very funny. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Christy, it's Christmas time. We're supposed to be kind. (laughs) Oh, right. Sorry. (laughs) I take it back. (laughs) 
In case you don't know, an unincorporated community just means it's not legally incorporated as a municipality, but it is recognized as a community. It's just a collection of homes, really. Mm-hmm. Two of Charlie's younger brothers, Marion and Elijah, were already in Germantown working as sharecroppers. Charlie wanted to join them in this endeavor. Sharecropping is when you live on and farm someone else's land and pay them rent with a percentage of your crop earnings. Charlie moving his family to join his brothers indicates to me that family was important to him and that he had good relationships with them. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you're moving further away. That's not always true. Not everybody that moves really far away doesn't like their family. That is really true. And not everyone who moves towards their family really loves them either. No. (laughs) The three brothers worked as tenant tobacco farmers and for the next nine years saved as much money as they could. Finally, in 1927, Charlie and Fanny had saved enough money to purchase their own farm. Their seventh child was born that same year, and then their last one was born two years later, the year of the annihilation. Hmm. William died two years after moving to the tenant farm, so after their last one was born, that brought their total to seven living children. Okay. So had eight, seven living. So another mouth to feed and a new farm to take care of. Right. Family stress. There's some family stress, but not the kind you'd think. Okay. Their farm was on Brook Cove Road, and Charlie stuck to what he knew best, growing tobacco. Their house was 200 years old, but it was their home, and they still lived close to Charlie's brothers. Two or three months before Christmas in 1929, Charlie sustained a significant head injury, which we know can alter the brain and cause people to do things they wouldn't have done previously. The Lawson family had been seen in a very good light by their neighbors. The house was filled with laughter and love, and they were always willing to help their neighbors. They were kind. Charlie had been using an axe, and it somehow hit him in the head. Not the sharp end. The blunt end. Yes. I'm not sure if it was the entire axe or if it had broken and then just the end hit him. There wasn't a lot of record keeping in 1929, but he was hit by the axe in the head. That would hurt. Uh Uh-huh. I've had the sledgehammer on the foot, and if it's anything like that, that does hurt. (laughs) Three months before Christmas would have been September. So if I had to guess, I would assume that he was chopping wood to prepare for the North Carolina winter. Mm -hmm. Family and friends reported that Charlie's personality or mental state did alter after the injury. He healed from the injury, but was never really the same. Many people believe that this head injury is what caused Charlie to snap and massacre his family. Others believe more sinister things were to blame. I'm with the later group, but thought it was important to note the injury as it very likely could have contributed to his later actions, especially since it was so soon after sustaining the injury. Could have altered his thought process for sure. Mm -hmm. After his death, Charlie's brain was taken to be examined at John Hopkins Hospital, since they had better equipment to examine it there than anywhere local. However, no abnormalities were found. This was 1929, so I am unsure if his brain were to be examined today with all the technical advances that we have, if the results would be the same. Oh yeah, we probably know a lot more. Mm -hmm. So the reports say nothing was wrong with the brain, but we take that with a grain of salt. Right. A week or so before the murders, Charlie did something that many, including myself, believe indicated premeditation, ruling out the theory that he just all of a sudden snapped and went on a bloody rampage. Which would point to his brain trauma being the contributing factor. Could be. 
And what is this suspicious behavior? Charlie took his entire family to have a family portrait taken. Oh. This isn't normally considered a suspect action. However, let me explain why it was. Prior to the photo, Charlie took his family of nine to the shops in town to purchase fancy new clothing, a luxury usually reserved solely for the well-to-do. They were working-class farmers in a rural area. A purchase like this would have been unheard of during that era. Even now, that would be a pricey shopping spree that a large majority of families wouldn't be able to afford. Oh, for sure. Usually you're grabbing from your closet what can we put together for family photos. Mm -hmm. The Lawsons had a professional photograph taken at a Winston-Salem photographer's studio, and it is haunting to look at. It is the only known photo of the family. It could very well be the only one ever taken. Many believe that Charlie wanted a picture of his family to be remembered by, and ironically, each one of them, except for one, was buried in that fancy new outfit. Oh, and so you think he bought the outfits for burial clothing? Well, this does make me question if he knew he was purchasing the clothing that they would ultimately be laid to rest in. Oh, why only some of them and not all of them? Because one of them survives. Okay. These purchases took most, if not all, the family's money, suggesting that Charlie knew they wouldn't need money for long. It wasn't purchases they could comfortably afford. Mm. So this to me speaks premeditation. He's emptying the bank account. He's emptying the bank account. He's getting this family photo to kind of immortalize their family so they can be remembered. And he's purchased them all brand new clothing. Okay, but I still need a motive then. We still have a motive. This was just to kind of allude to the fact that there was premeditation. Right. Because you're not going to empty your bank account for a family photo. No. If you're not able to feed that family. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Let's now go to December 25th, Christmas Day, 1929. Christmas should be a magical time filled with love and joy, especially for a family with young children. Most families enjoy a meal together and expressing their love for one another. The older we get, the more we appreciate that Christmas isn't about the presents, rather those you hold dearest. Unfortunately, this particular Christmas for the Lawson family would instead be filled with horror and bloodshed. I always find it so sad when these family annihilations happen on a holiday. I know. And they often do. Mm -hmm. It just seems so wrong, though. It really does. Because it's the opposite of what should be happening on a holiday. Yeah. Charlie had hyped up his children prior to Christmas morning, saying that he had a special surprise for them that year. Oh, so he's totally planning it. I believe so. Unfortunately, what he had in store was something no one should ever be subjected to and would have been the last thing they would have expected from their father, the man dedicated to providing for and protecting them. To me, this totally upped his dirtbag status. The kids, especially after being treated to clothing and a photo, likely would have been thinking that their father was going to continue to spoil them. That's a logical jump to make for them. Yeah, because they don't know how much money the dad has. Just, oh, dad's been like spoiling us all this stuff. Like Christmas is going to be good. Times are good. Mm -hmm. The Lawson family woke up to a fresh blanket of snow. I can't help but imagine that peaceful feeling of snow falling on a farmstead in the winter, especially on Christmas morning. The family had plans of enjoying a nice meal together later that day, and preparations had already begun in the kitchen. Marie, the firstborn child, age 17, had gotten up early to bake her famous raisin cake. Aww. I know. She baked two layers in separate pans and then assembled the cake with icing. 
the fire would have been burning and the house would have had that Christmas magic smell in the air. A common tradition in that area at the time was to go rabbit hunting Christmas Day. Charlie and his oldest son, 16-year-old Arthur, went out hunting that morning. Maybe rabbit was what they cooked for dinner, I'm not sure, but that was a common tradition. When they ran out of bullets, Charlie instructed Arthur to go to town to purchase more bullets so that they could continue to hunt. Arthur obeyed his father and left the farm. Little did he know, his father was not, in fact, out of bullets. So did he do this purposely to save Arthur? We're going to talk about it. Okay. 12-year-old Carrie and 7-year-old Maybelle decided that they wanted to go visit their aunt and uncle who lived close to their farm to wish them a Merry Christmas. It was believed to be around noon when the girls bundled up and headed out the door into the fresh, crisp snow. To get to their aunt and uncle's house, they had to walk past the tobacco barn that was on their property, a thing they likely did hundreds of times. This time, unbeknownst to them, their father was laying in wait, shotgun in hand. As the girls passed the barn, Charlie appeared and shot each of his daughters with his 12-gauge shotgun until they fell to the ground. He picked them off? He did. He was hiding behind the barn. They walked past. He jumped out and shoots them both. And nobody in the house knows anything's going on. No, because they're all out rabbit hunting. Yeah, because they're expecting to hear shotgun shots. Yeah, so it's not going to invoke any kind of suspicion at all or worry. Wanting to make sure he had done the job properly, Charlie proceeded to bludgeon his defenseless daughters to death. What? Both injuries would be reported as their cause of death, so it's unsure if they died immediately after being shot or if they were still alive when he began beating them. He was just filled with rage? He just wanted to make sure they were dead. You'd think a gun would make sure they were dead more than... A beating would. Yeah, you would think so. Like, why not just shoot them again? Why beat their bodies? That's what I felt like. Like, that's a very rageful, personal kind of attack. Yeah, that's weird. It's way more vicious. And he wasn't known to beat his children before this. Not at all. That is interesting. Yeah, no reports of abuse. Charlie was a good guy. Mm. Charlie drug Carrie and Maybelle's bodies into the tobacco barn. He crossed their arms across their chests and laid their heads on large rocks as if they were pillows. Although the bodies were now out of sight, their crimson blood would have looked shocking against the pure white snow. Oh, what if? So eerie. Mm-hmm. Reportedly, this was like a huge amount of snow for North Carolina at that time. Next, Charlie headed towards the house. He came upon his loving 37-year-old wife, Fanny. Some reports claim that she was peeling potatoes on the porch. Others say she was hauling firewood into the house. My guess is... Considering how much snow they had received, she likely wasn't sitting outside peeling potatoes, but instead was fetching wood. Either way, she was outside. She was outside on the porch. And women can multitask. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she was peeling potatoes in the house and went out to get more wood for the fire. When Charlie got close enough, he shot Fanny dead. In her last moments, Fanny might have heard her two daughters being shot. But like you said, likely didn't think anything of it since it was tradition for the people in the area to be rabbit hunting at the time and hearing gunshots would not have been unusual. Mm. It's just an eerie thought to me. But she was found on the porch. It wasn't like she went off to investigate the sounds. Nope, not at all. Okay. Charlie entered the house where his eldest daughter, 17-year-old Marie, and his two youngest sons, 4-year-old James and 2-year-old Raymond, were located. Being an older house in 1929, It appeared like the kitchen and living area were all in the same room. 
I could also see a large bed in the pictures of the same room. So I'm not sure how many rooms were even in the house or if it was just one large room. I think it may have been one large room with a second room upstairs Mm. for sleeping. It is impossible to know for sure if Marie saw or heard her mother get shot. I'm guessing she probably did. Yeah, a shotgun blast is pretty loud. Yeah, and right on your front porch. You would know. I think so. Nobody's shooting a rabbit on your front porch. No, and if she was gathering wood, the door might have even been opened. Mm. Charlie found Marie standing by the fireplace and open fired. She fell to the ground, her blood soaking the hardwood beneath her. Investigators determined that the boys, however, were fully aware of what was happening and tried to run and hide from their dad. Oh, it would be so scary. It really is. And they're two and four. They're so little. It's hard to comprehend even them having a knowledge to even run. Exactly. Like they just see their sister fall. They may have also witnessed their mom be killed if the door was open. Then they see their sister be killed and they know that it's their dad who's doing it. Mm -hmm. And what a horrific realization at the end of your life. Yeah. So terrifying. I guess really what I'm questioning is would a four-year-old and definitely not a two-year-old even have a concept of like them falling down means death? I don't know. Maybe Marie had yelled at them to hide. Yeah, maybe she had shed it at a warning. She could have. Because I don't think a two-year-old wouldn't know to run. He would be curious. But if you put a two-year-old and everyone screams and runs, they might run around too. That's true. Yeah. Charlie approached each of his young sons and shot them dead. You could tell by where their bloodstains were that they did try to hide. Mm. I think one was like behind the stove, like they had tried to. Yeah. In the same room was the baby's crib. Charlie, being an evil dirtbag, ended the life of his three-month-old baby girl, Mary Lou, by bludgeoning her to death. That is just so awful. I don't know how you can do that. This is going to sound awful, but why not just shoot her too? Like, why beat her? He beat her. Her official cause of death was a fractured skull. That is so bad. Blood evidence suggested that she was killed while still laying in her crib. So he just beat her in her crib. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why the three younger daughters were all bludgeoned. The older daughter was not bludgeoned and the boys were not bludgeoned and neither was his wife. So that is kind of odd behavior. It is. It's so weird. You're not checking to see if somebody's dead by bludgeoning them after. You shoot them. Right. And I'm not sure like why those three were. Did he have limited bullets? Were there bullets left at the end? I never read anywhere that he was low on bullets. When he told Arthur to go get them, that was just to get Arthur away. Huh. Because I was thinking maybe he was trying to conserve his bullets for maybe people that could fight back a little bit more. There was no indication of that. It wasn't like he used every last bullet. He just had hidden the bullets from Arthur. Super bizarre then that he would beat those three young girls. Mm -hmm. And not everybody else. Right. Like just them. Yeah. After he had shot them, which is even more bizarre. And the baby didn't even shoot. Right. I don't know if at the beginning when he killed Carrie and Maybell, if it was just his adrenaline, like he shot them, and if it was just like kind of overkill at the beginning, because those two were outside, and then the other five in the house, that had to be quick. Mm -hmm. So it was probably just the four shots, and then I don't know why he bludgeoned the baby. Like there has to be some rage there, because most family massacres, they just want them dead. Like they don't want to inflict pain. Right. They just want them dead. And fracturing your newborn baby's skull is inflicting pain. Yeah, that's brutal. It really is. Hmm. After murdering his wife and six of his children, Charlie gathered their bodies and fashioned them the same way he had Carrie and Maybell's. 
their arms crossed over their bodies, their eyes closed, and instead of rocks, he laid their heads upon each of their own pillows. So where they laid, did he move their bodies or did he just pose them after where they fell? It said he gathered their bodies. Okay. So probably brought them kind of close together. I'm assuming brought Fanny into the house. Yeah. I don't believe he brought the two other girls in. Because they were found in the tobacco shed. Yes. Or he might have. You know, we're 1929. The record keeping is not as good. But he definitely had put them into the tobacco shed because you could see their blood where they were laying. But then maybe he had moved them into the house with the others. Okay. Charlie then ran off into the woods that surrounded their home, taking his gun with him. One of Charlie's brothers and his wife were hunting rabbits nearby and decided to stop in at their brother's house to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. That would have been horrifying. Oh, yeah. They said when they approached the farmhouse, it stood out to them how quiet the property was. Yeah, you'd be expecting on Christmas Day for everything to be loud and laughter and... Yeah, especially with seven children. The house was rarely quiet. And like you said, they would have been expecting to see and hear excitement and hustle bustle of the holiday. I often say this, but I'm certain nothing could have prepared them for the discovery that they made. It would have seemed so out of the blue. Yeah. And they would have been, you know, they're out hunting the rabbits. They would have that special Christmas kind of spirit with them. Oh, let's go see our brother and his family. Mm -hmm. Not expecting to walk into all of them dead. Police were contacted and word spread quickly. Police picked up Arthur Lawson, who was still in town purchasing bullets, and brought him back to the farm. It is estimated that Charlie began his rampage very soon after Arthur left, and it likely didn't take him very long to complete the task. How suspicious, though, would that look? Yeah, the family turns up dead from gunshot wounds and he's buying bullets? That's true. I never really thought of that. All seven bodies were discovered, and Charlie was nowhere to be found. Charlie's nephew, Claude, was amongst the crew who discovered the Lawson family. He said about finding the bodies, quote, Whenever I went in there, some of them was laying in the house dead. Blood was running every which way. So it's a tiny house. Mm. And it would feel like everywhere you turned, there was a body. They found them soon enough after the murders that blood was still running. Yes. Gross. And it is so bloody. Like looking at, there's a photograph of the fireplace where you can see Marie's blood and there is so much of it. Mm. You can see the blood in the crib. It's just terrible. A couple of hours after the massacre had been discovered, while Arthur, police, and extended family were still at the farm, a gunshot was heard coming from the woods. When police followed the sound, they discovered 43-year-old Charlie Lawson in a pool of blood. He had shot and killed himself. His rifle was at the scene and near his body. Letters addressed to his parents were discovered. And I couldn't find any information regarding exactly what they said, only that they did not explain why their son would brutally slaughter his family. But definitely planned if he's leaving letters behind. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a snap judgment because it doesn't sound like he had enough time even to write those letters, say, in the woods later on. Well, he was out there for hours. Oh, okay. It was a couple of hours later, so he could have. But was he thinking about having to take paper and a pen out to the woods? Probably not. Yeah. Not a lot is reported about those letters. However, two incomplete notes were inside his pocket that read, quote, nobody to blame but and, quote, troubles can cause. Those are interesting. No one had any idea what these messages meant, but I will come back to them at the end. So don't forget about these two notes. Okay. Okay. 
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. When police found Charlie, his two beagle dogs were laying next to his body. Oh. They didn't know he was a dirtbag. That's sad. It is. And dogs just know when somebody's passed away, they don't leave their side. No, they were both laying by his body. So they had obviously like ran out with him into the woods. Something else that stood out to police is that there was a track created around the base of a tree. It appeared that Charlie had paced around the tree repeatedly before ending his life. So he was contemplating ending his life? Maybe he didn't know what to do next. I don't know if he was laying in wait for Arthur to get back. The realization of what he did was hitting him. Was he feeling regret? Was he trying to figure out how to get out of the predicament he was in? I don't think so, because he wouldn't have written those notes then. True. But whatever it was, he was obviously not at peace. I bet you he was waiting for Arthur to come back. But he wasn't just like sitting there laying and wait. He was pacing. Mm-hmm. Like they said, it was like a trench of mud that he had kind of walked it down to around the tree. Right. But he would have been waiting for Arthur to get back, knowing that he had to kill himself before anybody found them. And so it would have been this stress of... When is he coming back? Like, I need to just finish this, wanting to get it over and done with and kill himself, but still waiting for Arthur to come back. That could be. And when Arthur came back, police escorted. Then he was probably like, now what do I do? Yeah. Because my brother, he wasn't expecting his brother to come and find the family that quickly Mm -hmm. and call police. And now it's not just Arthur by himself. There's a whole crew of people there. Right. If this was premeditated and you've planned this out and now it's not going according to plan, you would pace. You'd have to figure out something else. And he probably planned to take his son with him and now he can't. And what do I do? Do I finish my job or do I kill myself? Right. So I could see pacing for that reason. Yeah, that's very valid. I agree. I cannot imagine the horror that 16-year-old Arthur went through. First to find out his mom and siblings were murdered. And then to hear the gunshot that ended his father's life. Yeah. He had an enjoyable morning with his father and had just left to run an errand. He was now the only one left alive in his immediate family. That would have been heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And so confusing. Right. When he would have left to go to the store, dad and I are hunting. We're going to catch a rabbit. Maria's already baked a cake. Mom's peeling potatoes. The girls are going to go see aunt and uncle. Like it would have been such a good day. Hmm. And there were no red flags that set him off that something bad was going to happen. Right. Because as a kid, you trust your dad. Yep. Many speculate why Charlie didn't include his eldest son in the killings. 
Did he want someone to carry his name and bloodline forward? Maybe. Many do believe that since his son was larger in stature than he was, that perhaps he sent Arthur away so that he wouldn't be able to overpower him and stop his sinister plan. And you think if he was going to shoot him, he would have done it when they were out rabbit hunting when he was alone and could have surprised him. Exactly. That is actually what I have next. I said, it's hard to say because if he really wanted to, he could have shot Arthur unsuspectingly while out rabbit hunting. He could have shot him from behind. He wouldn't have even seen it coming. Hmm. So it is very curious as to why Arthur wasn't included in that. Because he could have said, let's go out into the woods. Let's look over here for the rabbits. He could have let him walk a few steps ahead and Arthur wouldn't have known any differently. Exactly. If his dad was like cocking the gun. Yeah. Yeah. He'd think his dad just saw a rabbit. Yep. That is so bizarre. It's very curious behavior. The news of this horrific murder-suicide made national headlines, including being featured on the cover of the New York Times. A funeral was held for the remaining Lawson family, and it is reported that thousands of people attended. The nation was heartbroken. I can see how it would make such big news. Mm -hmm. The entire Lawson family, except for the only survivor, Arthur, were buried in a mass grave in a private local cemetery named Browder Family Cemetery in Germantown. The graveyard was established in 1908 for the W.D. Browder family and a few select neighbors and friends. It is still open today, but now exclusively for direct descendants of W.D. Browder. Well, that's interesting. I thought so. It's like a private cemetery. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Seeing pictures of this grave is so unnerving. Charlie got to be buried in the same plot as his family, whom he had murdered. Really? Yes. I'm surprised. Because usually, like, you couldn't even bury somebody that had committed suicide in sacred ground. Or like consecrated ground. I know. Let alone a murderer. And maybe because it was a private cemetery? I don't know. That is interesting. The headstone is three large stand-up stones. It's ginormous. And I'm assuming the coffins of each section are stacked on top of one another. When facing the grave, on the left is all three sons, James, Raymond, and William. And William is the one who passed away nine years prior. In the center is Charlie, Fanny, and baby Mary Lou. Mary Lou was buried inside her mother's coffin, nestled in Fanny's arms. Yeah, that's often done. On the right side of the grave are the three other daughters, Marie, Carrie, and Maybelle. Except for one, it is so heartbreaking to see the death dates all being the same day. That would be so eerie. It really was eerie. Plus, it's infuriating to see Charles in the center of the grave with his family, whom he demolished. All on either side of him. Yeah, he's right in the center. Yeah, that is so disturbing. Yeah, it really upset me, the grave, to be honest. Was it Arthur's choice to do that, to have them buried that way? I don't know. He was only 16. I don't know if he would have had much say. Maybe it was the brothers. I don't know who made that decision, to be honest. It's an interesting decision. It is. It was... A resting place I don't think he deserved. Yeah. The inscription on the gravestones reads, quote, Not now, but in the coming years, it will be in a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears, and then sometime we'll understand. Well, that's fitting. I don't know if we'll ever understand exactly why Charlie murdered seven of his family members before ending his own life. But there is a motivating factor that we haven't discussed yet. Charlie and Fanny's 17-year-old daughter, Marie, was pregnant. Oh, the scandal. Who's, who was the father? I'm going to tell you. 
1990, a book was published by Trudy J. Smith about the Lawson family murders titled White Christmas, Bloody Christmas. An anonymous source had first told the author the rumor that Marie was pregnant. Prior to being published, the author received a phone call from Stella Lawson, a relative of the Lawson family. She confirmed that Marie was pregnant at the time of her death. She claimed that she heard a conversation where Fanny confided in her sister-in-law and aunts that she was concerned about a quote-unquote incestuous relationship between her husband Charlie and her eldest daughter Marie. That totally makes more sense. First of all, I have to say what needs to be said. This was not an incestuous relationship. Marie was a child. If we're going to call it what it was, Marie was being raped by her disgusting father. Stella told the author that according to her mother, Jetty, the rape was happening at the bare minimum a year prior to the murders. Because her mother had talked to her about it, or she had overheard her mother talking about it, and her mother died a year before the murders took place. And that's when Fanny suspected it, that there was something going on. Right. And is that why they moved out? To be farther away from all of the other family members? I don't know. I just feel that it is so sad that no one intervened to help Marie if they knew a whole year prior that she was being raped. Ugh, that is awful. And for them to just call it an incestuous relationship? Like they didn't want to talk about it? And I guess a lot of people at that time in 1929, it was something you just shoved under the rug. Yeah, but I could see the urgency then. Right. Of all of a sudden, this is going to come to light. He needs to deal with this. And it was made clear that both Charlie and Fanny knew that Marie was pregnant with her father's child. About this, Stella, the family member who came forward, said, quote, This was unbelievable when this happened. I could hardly take it in after being at the Lawson home and seeing the love that Uncle Charlie showed his family. Uh, that's a little too loving. Definitely too loving. That's not love. Yeah. The same author published a second book about the Lawsons titled The Meaning of Our Tears in 2006 when one of Marie's closest friends, Ella May, came forward stating that Marie had confided in her that she was pregnant by her father and that both parents knew she was. She said Marie had told her just weeks before Christmas. So this is another person corroborating the claim. It's just so sad and so much like last year's Christmas story, Christy. Where there's that incestuous relationship that then leads to lack of control that leads to a whole family annihilation. I did think of that, actually. Ugh, so disturbing that this happens. I know. Not just once, but more than once. It's true. And probably more than twice. Ugh. Another close friend of the family, Hill Hampton, admitted that serious problems were happening in the Lawson family, but wouldn't give too many specific details. This theory that Charlie murdered his family because he had repeatedly raped and then impregnated his teenage daughter seems quite plausible to me. I will add that in the family photo, Marie does not appear to have a baby bump. She is standing in the back of some of her siblings who were sitting in front of her, but her stomach is still visible. One thing you can notice is her stone-cold face. Her face was far from smiling, and Fanny had a similar stern expression. And Charlie's standing between both of them, isn't he? Yes. And in fact, the only one with a hint of a grin was Dirtbag Charlie. So at that time, though, it wasn't common to smile in pictures. It wasn't. But when you have this information and you go back and look at the picture, it is unnerving. Yeah. Listeners, you should look up the photo. 
it would have been in the time of corsets. So hiding a baby bump wouldn't have been that difficult. That's true. Mind you, I don't know if they're well off enough to have corsets. It was their fancy clothing, but still pretty plain. Okay. I cannot imagine what Marie and Fanny were going through. I think this pregnancy was a recent discovery. Fanny had just given birth three months prior to her own child with Charlie and then to discover this. Stella reported that Fanny was distraught. Maybe she had confronted her husband and he murdered them and himself to escape any consequences of his sickening, coward-like actions. That is just so disturbing. And all the time that he's planning on killing him, he's got this big Cheshire grin because he knows what's going to happen. Yeah, it's like he has a little bit of a smirk. Ugh. And you just want to slap it right off of his face. There is another theory that some believe explains the frightful Christmas in Germantown in 1929. I personally think it's hogwash. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some pretty strong words, Christy. So it must be hogwash. <laughs> I'm standing by it. It's hogwash. <laughs> but I am doing my due diligence as a researcher to at least mention it. Many believe that Charlie was not the one to annihilate his family. They believe that Charlie witnessed a major crime and that he and his family were murdered to be silenced. And then his death was made to look like a suicide? Yes. Okay. <laughs> by Melissa's face, I can tell she's calling hogwash too. <laughs> When's the last time you heard the word hogwash? <laughs> This is honestly so ridiculous. I don't even think I need to poke the obvious holes in this line of thinking. Was he frequently in town? Did he associate with criminals? Like, where is he seeing this criminal activity go on? No, he's a tobacco farmer. Oh. All I'll say is that, to me, nothing in this case speaks to this being true. And if I'm wrong, I'll eat my shoe. <laughs> I was thinking as I wrote that, look at me fast forward eating my shoe. <laughs> that would be a good post if that happens, Christy. That's true. <laughs> Listeners don't hope that it's true just to see me eat my shoe. Because she will. I will. But I can make one out of cake. <laughs> <laughs> She's a woman of her word. I am. There is one last theory I'm going to end on. But before I do that, I want to share what the immediate aftermath of the murders entailed for Arthur, the surviving son, and some of the extended loss in family. Soon after the murders, Marion Lawson, Charlie's brother, opened the murder house on Brook Cove Road as a tourist attraction. Oh, really? Yes. We all know that the public generally has a morbid curiosity, and so he was able to sell tickets to tour the house for 25 cents each, which in conversion is only $6 Canadian today. Huh. Not sure how I feel about that. It's yucky. Yeah. Marion claimed that he only did it to help Arthur pay the mortgage on the property. Okay. I'm unsure how much he made total, but many people came and toured the house. Marion left the crime scene pretty much how it had been discovered. The blood had stained large amounts of the floor, and the crib still doned bloody sheets from baby Mary Lou. That's disturbing. But Be that's how you have all those pictures now. It's true. And because people are people... They began taking small bits of whatever they could from the house home with them. Many reports stated that tourists would pick raisins out of the cake Marie baked that Christmas morning to take with them as souvenirs. They left even the cake on the table? It was left totally the same. Probably huh. Arthur got a few of his items out of the house and that was probably it. Marion eventually had to place the cake under a glass cake dish to stop people from taking pieces from it. That's gross. Visitors didn't just take the raisins. They took many other things that included peeling pieces of bark off the tree that Charlie paced around before ending his own life. They like stripped the tree, tree. of its bark. Yeah. 
Marion also had copies made of the family's one and only photo, taken just a couple of weeks before the murder, and sold the photographs to everyone who visited the house. Along with the photos, he also sold pamphlets about the murders. Did he include the incestuous pregnancy? I don't think so. Actually, no, that didn't come to light till like 1990, decades later. Like, did they not do autopsies? I couldn't find any autopsy reports. Huh. And maybe they didn't because they knew the cause of death. They might not have, to be honest. Was this a dirtbag taking advantage of his family's misfortune or was he really trying to help his nephew? For me, it seems unlikely that almost immediately the majority of people would logically be looking for a way to profit off of a family tragedy. It was just weird behavior. Very questionable. Yeah. And did Arthur even really want to stay in that farm? Oh, I doubt it. Yeah, exactly. So why does he need the mortgage covered? Yeah. I guess to sell it. It was just very bizarre that your brother has just murdered his whole family and you're thinking, oh, we can make some money off this. I don't think Marion had anything to do with anything, but it was just questionable. It's an interesting thought process. Yeah. The Lawson's house has since been torn down. The wood from the house was used to construct a small private covered bridge. The property is thankfully not open to the public anymore. That being said, if you do want to see any memorabilia from the Lawson family, you might be in luck. In Madison, North Carolina, there is a store called Madison Dry Goods. Inside this store, there is a small museum dedicated to the Lawson family. And it's open from 10 to 6 daily. I looked it up. So it has like their personal items in it? Yeah, inside there are newspaper clippings and items from the Lawson home. I believe Mary Lou's crib is even amongst these items. And I think if we ever make it to North Carolina, we might have to swing by and make a pit stop at the museum. This case inspired many media items. There was a song written about these murders. It's a folk song entitled The Murder of the Lawson Family, recorded by the Stanley Brothers. Another song was written by Walter Kidd Smith called The Ballad of the Lawson Family Murder. Walter Kidd Smith would sometimes show up and perform his song on the front porch of the Lawson home during the tours. No way. It seems disrespectful to me, but it sounded like Marion hired him to do so. And it's just creepy. It's totally like the folk kind of music. So it just doesn't seem to jive with the lyrics. That is really strange. Yeah. Like this isn't a carnival. Your family was massacred here. But that was kind of the thing that happened at that time. Like if we talk about Belgunis. It's true. That's what happened. They actually had like vendors selling food and everything at her murder scene. That is true. So I think it was just one of those things that happened at the time. Right. So while it seems like a really bizarre behavior to us, it was probably less bizarre then. And if we look back in history, like people would come to public hangings and like it wasn't that taboo. Mm -hmm. There were books written about these murders, including the ones I already mentioned. Many TV shows were inspired or based on this crime, including an episode of Criminal Minds. The episode is called Starter Home and is in season 14. I believe there was even a movie based on this case. Just before I get into the last theory, a very quick update on Arthur Lawson, the son who survived his father's wrath. He went on to get married and had four children of his own. Unfortunately, he was tragically killed in a freak motor accident in 1945 at the age of 32. That's really young to die. A pretty sad ending. That's just tragedy on top of tragedy. It really is. Okay, are you ready for the last theory? Yes. Are you calling it hogwash too? No, I'm not. (laughs) But you might. We'll see. Remember the Madison Dry Goods store that I just told you about? Mm -hmm. When the Lawson family was murdered, 
Germantown was not equipped to deal with that many bodies. They weren't even prepared to be able to physically move that many bodies to the local funeral parlor. With a community as small as Germantown, they likely didn't even have that many deaths in an entire year, let alone all at once. Christmas night, the bodies were taken to the building where Madison Dry Goods is located, as they had a funeral parlor upstairs. Inside the building, there is the original working elevator that helped to transport the bodies. Another coroner offered to help, and he just so happened to have a relative visiting for Christmas who was also able to perform as a coroner. Fun fact, he was the one who took Charlie's brain back to John Hopkins with him to be examined. It was where he worked. Okay. This building, located on 104 West Murphy Street, was built in 1908 and was first a hotel, I believe. It was also a tobacco shop while the hotel was operational. After they closed the hotel, that's when the TB Night Funeral Parlor was established on the second floor. This is where the bodies were prepared for burial, and it's where the museum is stationed. In the embalming room is where the museum is. Allegedly, because this case was so hyped in the media, after the bodies were prepared for burial, they displayed them on the streets for viewing. 5,000 people gathered on the streets to see the hearses carry the bodies back to Germantown to be buried. That's a lot of people for that time. It is. And without internet. Yeah, like I'm not even seeing how that word could spread that much. Well, it was on the New York Times. But people would have to travel. Like 5,000 bodies from a rural area? That's a lot of people together. It really is. When I first started looking this case over at the request of our listener... I immediately realized that this case seemed oddly familiar to me. Turns out I had just watched a series on Netflix that included this case. There is a show out right now called 28 Days Haunted. And this is where our last theory comes in. In 1998, Richard and Kathy Miller purchased the building and soon realized they had purchased more than they had bargained for. Could you imagine purchasing a store and then getting a whole embalming suite? Well, I think they knew that that was there. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That wasn't the surprise. That wasn't the surprise. I'll tell you what it was. Employees, as well as visitors, started to claim that they were seeing spirits inside the building. Things like pictures and objects would also start to move on their own. So they had bought a haunted building. Oh, no. Many also report feeling this heaviness and can sense that they are not alone when they enter the building. Like still today, people say there's just this heaviness. Like sadness? When they walk in. Okay. In the show, 28 Days Haunted, the son-in-law of Ed and Lorraine Warren sets up three teams. If I remember correctly, in three different locations, one of which being Madison Dry Goods. And a little side note, if you don't know who Ed and Lorraine Warren are, they were basically real-life Ghostbusters. They were associated with the hauntings involving the Amityville House, Annabelle, and the other hauntings based on the Conjuring movie franchise. The Warren son-in-law set out to prove Ed and Lorraine's theory that it takes 28 days to pierce the veil between people and the spirit world. So he sends these three teams to the different locations with zero information or prior knowledge about what had happened in the buildings or who is haunting them. The owners of Madison Dry Goods agreed to close their store for a month to allow the experiment to take place. At this location, a demonologist named Jeremy Leonard and a fifth-generation psychic medium named Brandy Marie Miller spent the 28 days in the building. If you haven't watched it, I'm going to spoil a little bit in this next part. While in the building, they are not allowed access to the outside world. 
including no internet. So they can't Google what happened, and they didn't know where they were going to be dropped off prior to arriving there. Okay, that's what I was, I was like, I just look up where I was going. No, they had no idea. They just knew they were going to be sent to a haunted place, and they're going to do this 28-day experiment. Okay. So they get there, they take off their blindfold, see Madison dry goods, and even they said as soon as they walk in, just this like heavy feeling. I won't go through all the details, and I can't say one way or another if the show is genuine or not, but throughout the 28 days, Brandy and Jeremy go on one heck of a ride. They are able to see and feel spirits, some good ones including Fanny and Marie, and some not so good, including Charlie and a dark entity or demon. Some say he was possessed? Yes. That's like the story of The Conjuring. It is. Interesting. And it's Ed and Lorraine's son-in-law who was doing this experiment. So they're not reinventing the story. No. And hence another theory that this dark demon possessed or influenced Charlie into killing his family. Throughout the show, Brandy and Jeremy figure out a lot of the details that I just told you about. If the show isn't staged, this blows my mind. It's such a well-known true crime story that don't you think maybe they clued in to when they were there? This is the crime story that we're talking about. If it isn't staged, they didn't have any prior knowledge to it. Hmm. I don't want to tell you too much, but I will leave you with one last thing that is super creepy. During the show, Jeremy starts to become affected by this dark power. His demeanor changes. He starts to have physical issues and no longer acts like his normal friendly self. Similar things that people reported Charlie behaving like after his head injury and leading up to the murders. The real kicker. Jeremy starts to write on paper two unfinished sentences. Quote, nobody to blame but, and quote, troubles can cause. If this is real, what the actual heck? That is freaky. If you didn't make the connection, that is the exact same thing that was written on paper inside Charlie's pockets when they found him dead. Because that's not a commonly known fact about this true crime story. It absolutely is not. Oh, that is... Okay, now I have to go watch this show. Can you come watch it with me, though? (laughs) Yeah, I'll rewatch it. I've already watched... There's not very many episodes to it, and it goes over the three different locations, but this was definitely one of them. And I didn't know I was going to be covering this case when I watched it, or I would have paid maybe even closer attention. But I felt like it was well done. Hmm. And the spooky part of me really wants to believe that this is true. (laughs) And the spooky part of me will be like, no, it can't be true. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the story of a man who viciously murdered seven members of his family on Christmas Day, who might have been affected by a brain injury, or who may have impregnated his teenage daughter, or just might have been possessed by an evil entity, Charles Lawson. I don't know where to go with that now, Christy. (laughs) I'm going to bet that it was the incestuous relationship that was going to come to light that he had to cover up. That's the theory I'm going with. That's the motive. I feel like that is the motive as well. But maybe this dark entity also attached himself to Charlie after doing such horrific acts. Well, you would have to have some sort of darkness in you to even do those horrific acts. Yeah. Or maybe the entity attached to him after the fact in the spirit world. Mm. Hard to say. Yeah, that's a really creepy thought about that spirit attaching itself to him. Yeah, you'll have to go watch it. And listeners, if you have watched that and you know this case, let us know what you think. What theory do you believe? And to do a total 180 from everything that we just talked about, 
We again want to wish our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a reminder that we will be back in action on January 5th. But until next year, see ya. Bye. God, it was me. I gave <laughs> you the eyebrows. I know. Okay, sorry. <laughs> what? All I'm thinking in my head is, ouch, Charlie, that hurt. Charlie bit my finger. <laughs> it's still hurting, <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> That's the best video. I didn't know you knew that one. That was the running joke in our house for so long. <laughs> Charlie's probably all grown up by now. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not biting any more fingers. <laughs> Cannibalism. <laughs> See, replays are awesome. That's right. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's why I put it in there. Cause I'm like, I didn't know that. I had to look it up. <laughs> I did. <laughs> That's because you were from an unincorporated community. <laughs> into the Depaka. Charlie drug Carrie and Maybell's bodies into, it's the T-O-T-O, two in tobacco. So seven. Even though I'm showing you seven. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, we were had a camera in here. <laughs> we're buried in a mass grave in a pride. Buried. Because we're buried motives. Right. A word that I have a hard time saying. <laughs> Let me try again. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.